Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 9, Luke chapter 9. God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the only means by which we may know who God is, what His plan of salvation is, and it's the only means by which we can truly know ourselves. And to honor the most holy Word of the Lord and to honor our Lord Himself, let's stand as we get together and read, starting at verse 28 of Luke 9. Luke 9, 28. This is the word of our Lord. Some eight days after these things, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would work faith in us to receive and believe this, your word, even to believe it unto salvation. For we ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever had an experience or maybe a, a series of experiences that changed your life for the sake of the kingdom? Maybe it was the first time you realized what Christ had done for you. Maybe it was the first time you believed, truly believed that you were a Christian. Now those experiences or those enlightenments are, uh, are something that doesn't have to be a voice from heaven. It doesn't have to be a vision from heaven. It doesn't have to be some extraordinary dream. But it might be just reading the word of the Lord and God opening your mind to understand and believe what's written in His Word. Now, if you haven't had an experience or an enlightenment of that fashion, maybe you should pray that God would give you that. In our text today, these three apostles, Peter, James, and John, went up on the mountain with Jesus. 
Um, and they had an experience, I believe, that changed their lives forever. Now, I'll give you a little bit of context of what's going on here. If you study Luke from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, Christ is extremely active. There are times where Jesus has a marathon healing session from sundown to sunrise, healing and delivering many. And they didn't want him to stop, but Jesus said I had to go elsewhere. And, and then from then on, throughout almost all of the what we've read and studied so far in Luke, chapter 1 through 8, um, well, not chapter 1, but I mean most of Luke up through chapter 8, you have a very active ministry of Jesus, healing many, delivering many, feeding the 5,000. And as we begin in Luke 9, 18, all the way through Luke 11, we have this period of a slower pace wherein Jesus is now focusing more on teaching his holy apostles because he's going to have to go away soon and the apostles have to be the foundation of his church so maybe you could think of it luke 9 18 through 11 13 it's it's like that seminary education period for the apostles today's text verse 28 it kind of demonstrates this less intense pace look at verse 28 again some eight days after these sayings he took along peter james and uh, peter john and james and went up on the mountain to pray so before this going up on the mountain to pray there was a period of of six uh, some some trend, some other gospel accounts say about six and um if you look at other translations of luke it says about eight but i don't think that's a big discrepancy but they at least had a time of rest where they were basically just having a, a more training and, and time of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what are the sayings he's talking about? It's going back to what we've studied before earlier in the chapter. Remember that Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ of God. And we find out from Matthew's gospel that this was given to him by the Father. Of course, Jesus says not to tell anyone, because if they told others, then it would interfere with what the plan of Christ was, was that at his appropriate time, not now, but at his appropriate time, the Son of Man must be able to suffer and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and raised on the third day. And unlike what some wanted to do in John's gospel, he was not also to be taken as a military leader messiah to help them bring revolt against the, the Roman Empire. That was not what he came to do. Verse 26, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So that's the sayings that are mentioned there in, in verse 28. Now, Peter, John, and James going up on the mountain, we're expecting maybe a time of prayer and devotion, but I don't believe they expected to see what they saw, this experience that really changed their lives. The main focus of today's text is that we are to listen to and worship the revealed Lord Jesus Christ. We are to listen to and worship 
the revealed Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see this in two main points. Christ unveiled his glory. And secondly, how we ought to respond. How we ought to respond to the unveiling of Christ's glory. Let's look at this first main point. Christ's unveiled glory. Verses 29 and following. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothes became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Now, I'm focusing on today's text as the unveiling of Christ's glory. That's what this passage is about. But how do we understand Christ having a veiled glory? One of the best places to understand this very important concept in Scripture is from Philippians 2. Let's turn to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important as yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the theological reason why you ought to live like that. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this very reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, to understand the veiling of Christ's glory, you have to come to an understanding of a bad theory that some have used. There's this word called kenosis, and it comes from the Greek word for emptied, when it says he emptied himself. Now, the theory of this kenosis theory is that Jesus, when he took on human flesh, he emptied himself of his eternal attributes. Now, you should have a problem with that, because... How in the world would Jesus be able, with his voice, to calm the storms and the waves? 
that they would listen to him if he was not the Lord of creation. Of course, Jesus did many other signs and wonders and miracles that proved that he was the very God-man. Now, but adherence to that theory are not right um, for many reasons because Christ, in this passage, when it says he emptied his glory and became humble as a servant, it's not his humility by what he put off, but his humbling himself as a bondservant by was according to what he put on. The eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, added to his perfect divine human his divine God nature a human nature. And by that human nature, he veiled his glory. Many who saw him didn't see him as anything but a carpenter's son. But here, as we go back to Luke, he's on the mount, and that glory of the eternal Son of God, who dwelt with the Father before all time began, that veil was just slightly opened, and you saw a glimpse of the blessed, magnificent glory of who Jesus was. When we see Jesus in glory, we will see that glorious, awesome Jesus, the same one that was presented on the mountain, because his glory will no longer be veiled in the same fashion it was. You know, you have to think, if Christ, his entire life, showed forth this glory and it wasn't veiled, do you think people would have put him on the cross? I don't think so. Don't, I, I don't think that would, it would have happened. Uh, look at this uh, passage in verse uh, 29. When it talks about his garments gleaming. Now, the, the Greek word used here for gleaming is a bit subdued. It actually could be translated as flashing as lightning. It could be translated as flashing as lightning. Now, you might wonder to yourself, Christ shining forth his awesome glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. What in the world are the, the three apostles doing falling asleep? It says that sleep overcame them. Now, probably the safest answer is that God willed this to happen because um, maybe what was being said between Jesus and, well, Moses and Elijah wasn't meant for them. Um, but we know that it was God's will for them to, to fall asleep at this particular time. Uh, another explanation is that if you, if you read the text, it seems to say that the three apostles didn't see Christ in his full, full glory besides Moses and Elijah until they were fully awake. It says that in uh, verse 32. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. I think it's good for us to ask this question. Why is this here in the Bible in the first place? Why the transfiguration? Why Christ unveiling his glory? And I think a careful look at the text tells us why. It wasn't just for the apostles. It was for Christ's preparation Moses and Elijah, this is verses 30 through 31. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, were speaking of his departure, 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I don't know, but if you were going to be crucified and you had to face the wrath of an eternal, infinite God, your Father, I think I would want a little preparation in, in, in maybe before going through that. So maybe they were giving some guidance and uh, in, in telling him what was uh, going to happen. And I think that was very helpful for our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, another thing is that in light of facing the wrath, the eternal infinite wrath of his Father due for sinners, Jesus needed to be assured of the care and the, the abiding presence of his Father. This is my Son, my Chosen One is what is said in verse 35. This is what the voice from heaven spoke, the Father speaking to the Son. Now, as we will read later, when Peter recounts this event toward the end of his life, he says that it was said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Throughout this immense ordeal, suffering the wrath of his father, Jesus needed to know that his father was abiding with him and loved him and would never depart from him. Now these words are reminiscent of Isaiah 42. Let's turn there. Isaiah 42. And the father says, this is my son, my chosen one. Isaiah 42, starting at verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish, until he faithfully brings forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will, be, will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offering, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you. In righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Jesus here is mentioned as a gentle or the eternal son of God who would become Messiah is mentioned here as a gentle Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He's a gentle, loving God who will not let any of his people go, any of his chosen ones go. And the father says he's not going to let his son go. He says, I will uphold you by the hand and watch over you. 
even in the darkest times of the crucifixion, and then I will appoint you as a covenant to my people. When Jesus presents and institutes the Lord's Supper, he said, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Jesus Christ is the chief figure of the covenant of grace. But look again at Isaiah uh, 42, verse 3. It says, He will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus is the one who faithfully brings forth justice because we are given Christ as our propitiation. That means a sacrifice that turns away wrath so that God will be able to faithfully bring forth justice. It's only because of the perfect work of Christ that God can be in his forbearance of sins uh, which are passed over both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, according to Romans 3. Christ's glory is evident on the Mount of Transfiguration, but foretold here in the prophecy of Isaiah. So getting back to Luke, you have to ask yourself, in light of Christ revealing his glory to his apostles, how ought they to respond? In light of Christ revealing his glory to us through his word and spirit, how ought we to respond? So let's look at this next main point, how we ought to respond. Our first lesson in how we should respond to God's revealing himself in the glory of Christ by unveiling the glory of Christ is given in a negative example, of course, uh, through Peter. Verse 33. As these, that is, Moses and Elijah, were leaving him, that is, Christ, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Um, in this uh, Peter's rather impulsive way, you speak first and think later. Um, you know, I've, I, we, we've all done that. You speak, speak or act first, think later. Um, but here, uh, I, I did read someone who said that maybe Peter wasn't quite fully awake, and that's why he said something like this, and he just was still groggy. But it does say in verse 32 that they were already fully awake when they saw Christ in his glory. So he wasn't because he was in a stupor. Uh, Matthew Henry writes this. But those who know not, uh, those know not what they say that talk of making tabernacles on earth for glorified saints in heaven. In other words, you, you're talking nonsense if you want to make a tabernacle on earth for a glorified saint in heaven. Um, we don't know... Peter's motivation for this. Um, some have thought of this as a, a tabernacle for worship, a, a, something as a religious tabernacle. Uh, one of the translations says that these were considered maybe merely tents or shelters. Um, either way, whatever, the, it would be blasphemy to say that uh, someone should make an object or a tent for worshiping Elijah and Moses. But if let's just give it the benefit of the doubt here that he's wanting shelters. He wants tents to shelter these three. Why would you do that? 
Um, maybe Peter didn't want them to leave. He wanted them to have a place to stay on top of the mountain so he could be with them. You know, let's just stay here upon this mountain and bring everyone else so we can come and have them talk with Moses and Elijah as well. But whatever the motivation was, it was strange. And God the Father then corrects and instructs these three apostles how they ought to respond instead. Look at verses 34 through 35. While he, Peter, was saying this about this business of tent building, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. Peter was right. When God the Father revealed unto him that Jesus was the Christ of God, Peter was right. But here God is testifying further that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son in whom God delights in, his chosen one, his Messiah. So rather than listen to Peter's talk about making tents, the three are told, listen to him instead. Listen to the only begotten Son of God. In a similar fashion, whenever you get a glimpse of the glory, the divine glory of Christ, in his word, you might say, well, how should I respond? Respond by listening carefully to the words of Christ. Now, I don't think that this is a call just to listen to only the words written in red in your red letter edition, that the rest of the word is not to be heeded as well. The eternal Word of God was God, was with God, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and that light of Christ shone in the darkness, even before his incarnation. Um, oftentimes in the scripture, when you hear of the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Son, it's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever we have Holy Scripture given to us through prophets and apostles. It's given to us through the Spirit of Christ, that is, the Holy Spirit. So to be careful to listen to the words of Christ is to be careful to listen to all that has been revealed to us through the eternal Word of God, through His Spirit, the eternal Son of God. Now surely with great awe and even, a, even fears mentioned here in today's text, Peter, James, and John they listened to the voice of the Father coming out of the cloud that surrounded them. Look at verses 36. They heeded that voice. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent. They listened. But later on it says, they reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Without a doubt, this transfiguration changed the very lives of these three apostles. Peter makes mention of this later in his life. I have this in your outline. 2 Peter chapter 1. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, such an utterance 
as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, that is the Mount of Transfiguration. Brothers and sisters, in order for the word of God to become effectual unto you with salvation, you are called to attend to God's word with diligence, preparation, and prayer. You are to receive it with faith and love, and you are to lay it up with, in your heart, and you are to practice it in your lives. But I hope this text encourages you to worship our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. He came down from heaven. He left the glories of heaven to, to humble himself as a servant, to live among us, to suffer the miseries of this life, the death of the cross, to suffer under death for a time, yet to then be raised and exalted on the third day and to ascend into heaven as our great high priest, our glorious Lord. What more could have Christ done to encourage you to worship him as the Lord of glory? You are to listen to him, his word, and to worship him, the blessed Lord Jesus. Christ unveiled his glory on this mount. He gave us a picture of what he would look like in heaven, a, a, a little glimpse he wasn't an ordinary man. He was the eternal Son of God who took upon flesh. It wasn't that he emptied himself of any of his divinity, but he veiled it by taking upon himself human nature. And then he unveiled that glory just for a little glimpse for them to see. Shouldn't that cause you to change your lives? How ought we to respond now, you might say, well, I haven't heard a voice from heaven. I haven't seen a vision. I didn't see anything like this, this transfiguration. But in the same fashion, when you read God's word, when you pray as you read God's word, asking for faith to receive it and believe it, ask that God would bring enlightenment to you in such a fashion that it would change your life. I still remember the day in college in Monroe, Louisiana. I think I was in a cafeteria of the health club doing an assignment for a class. Yes, I took a, I took a New Testament class for credit. So one of the classes that helped change my life, I, I, I got credit for for college for therapy school. But the, uh, the elder who was teaching this college class was a elder at the Presbyterian Reformed Church in the area. And that's he had us reading the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first time I read this, question and answer 39 of the Heidelberg, it, said, it asked this question. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, by this I am convinced that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. 
That was perhaps the first time in my life that I ever understood the truth behind Galatians 3, 10 and following, that Christ paid for all of my sins and Christ took the entire curse which laid upon me. It doesn't have to be a Mount of Transfiguration experience. It could be understanding and believing what Christ has done for you. Pray that God would give you that grace and that it would change your life. Let's pray together. Our glorious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have unveiled the glory of Christ here upon the Mount of Transfiguration and that you have even shown us even a greater picture of the glory of our blessed Lord Jesus, even the book of Revelation. We thank you that Christ loved us so much that he suffered and died for us, but then was exalted and raised up for us. And he has ascended to your right hand for us. Help us to live for him and not for ourselves. Help us to change our lives in a way that we shine forth as sons and daughters of the kingdom to reflect your glory. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's stand and sing 466. My faith looks up to thee. 466.